0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, November 9th begins right now. Today on the show, Ben talks national news and local news with human rights advocate, Pushkar Sharma. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what's going on in the news, what's on Ben Jarofsky's reading list you need to head to chicagoreader.com. And there's a whole lot more where that came from. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, he hangs out there too. Just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y.
1: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this love from the Tribune Thursday, and here's why. All right. So I'm about to have a conversation uh, with Pushkar Sharma about something having absolutely nothing to do with the city of Chicago, although the city of Chicago uh, did get involved to some degree or another, politically speaking, uh, with the war in Gaza, uh, Israel, Palestine. But uh, I just have to say it's a big moment in the the Benny J life, big moment for the Ben Jarovsky show. Uh, I was mentioned in the Chicago Tribune uh, editorial. I'm sort of being facetious here, smiling as I say. Everybody who knows me knows that I have been a critic of the Chicago Tribune's editorials going way, way back, long before my guest was born. And uh, this goes back to uh, this really like like my first like, realization. I was like coming to terms with the fact that like. Newspapers weren't always my friends, as much as I loved newspapers. And I think the the moment of realization for me uh, was in the late '60s. It was, uh, I just I was 13 years old. I was obsessive uh, news geek, newspaper geek. Believe it or not. Uh, following politics, and uh, the uh, FBI teamed up with the state's attorney and the mayor of Chicago and the police department to conduct a raid on the uh, West Side Apartment of Fred Hampton, and they killed him while he was sleeping. Uh, and the Chicago Tribune, man, uh, the Chicago Tribune made it seem as though uh, the uh, Fred Hampton had been shooting at the police when, in fact, uh, he was drugged. Uh, by an undercover operative for the FBI, and it was just an execution. So ever since then, folks, I've been struggling with the Chicago Tribune. But yesterday, uh, they saw fit to mention me in an editorial, uh, and the reason they mentioned me was not because they have sudden love for me or for uh, the insights I have to offer. It was as though they said, you know what? Upon reflection, we realized that Ben Jarofsky is right, and we are wrong on pretty much every single issue facing the city. No! They used an interview I did with Stacey Davis-Gates on Tuesday to pound Stacey Davis-Gates. <laughs> and then they mentioned that she said it on my show. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, Stacey Davis-Gates, uh, she is the head, of course, of the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, she's a dear friend of Brandon Johnson. Of Brandon Johnson comes. From the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, he was supported by them. Everything he has in politics today, he owes mm-hmm. to the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and she is standing by her man, Stacey Davis Gates. She's very loyal to Brandon Johnson. And so, any particular issue that affects Brandon Johnson, uh, including what, what what has gone down over the last week, dealing with the sanctuary issue in Chicago, the way uh, Brandon's former. Uh, floor leader Carlos Ramirez Rosa behaved in re- relation to other uh, aldermen. Any particular position? Stacy Davis Gates will uh, defend Brandon Johnson. She, that's that. That's their her. She she said on the show that's her brother. Uh, she considers him her brother, and she is going to defend him. Uh, and uh, that's where she's coming from. And I'm a little different on that particular issue. Um, I believe uh, putting aside Carlos's behavior, which he apologized for and resigned. Uh, I believe that a lot of what went down last week has to do with um, what's the right word the mishandling of this situation uh, by the administration. Uh, I've done a lot of reflecting on this. I've talked to a lot of people about this. I've thought a lot about this Uh, and the notion that a meeting on something like the status of Chicago as a sanctuary city would come down to Carlos Ramirez Rosa standing at the door to prevent uh, people, uh, alders, from coming on the floor to uh, to participate in the meeting, try to deny a quorum. Uh, I, I think that shows um, inadequate leadership from the mayor. I think the mayor should have been more forefront, at the forefront on this. I think the mayor should have been on the phone. If he didn't want that meeting to happen, he himself should have called the alders and said, don't come to the meeting. Please. It's not going to help our city. It's not going to help me. It's ultimately not going to help you. Uh, because we will be viewed as a city of hate. So don't come to the meeting. You know what I'm saying? And we talked about this with Rod Sawyer yesterday. And then the the Alders would have said, well, all right, Mr. Mayor, if I don't come to the meeting, what are you going to give me? So then the wheeling and dealing begins. Because that's politics, ladies and gentlemen. You know, there's wheeling and dealing that goes in politics. And we're going to be talking about on a greater scale with far more human consequences uh, between Israel and Palestine uh, with Busher, We're going to be discussing that. So uh, I um, I get to what you were doing, Tribune. You're using me to pound Stacy, and I think you're slick. But at least you spelled my name right. Um, you kind of promoted the show, so I guess all is not lost. But I hope. The Mayor Johnson takes a look at what went down last week and what's been going on this week and reflects upon what his administration can do to be more proactive uh, on this issue and take charge and take leadership on this issue so like, it doesn't come down to uh, his floor leader standing at a doorway, begging people, pleading with people, cajoling people, badgering people, bullying people not to show up for a meeting. So that's where I stand on that issue right now. All right, we're going to move on to uh, uh, the Middle East. Having tackled that uh, issue, uh, Pushkar, we're going to um, take a dive into something that's even more contentious um, and sobering, and that's the ongoing war uh, in Gaza. So first of all, welcome to my humble Podcast. Uh, This is your first visit, and thank you very much for taking time to do it. Thank you so much for welcoming me. All right, why don't you take a moment uh, to introduce yourself uh, and give folks a little bit about your background, and so they'll understand why you're in sort of an ideal position uh, to discuss uh, the issue we're going to be talking about. So go ahead.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I am the founder and executive director of Parallax Policy. It's an international human rights policy firm um, based here in Chicago, was born at Edgewater Hospital grew up in Skokie. Um, I have also been engaged um, locally, politically on a few different things um, with an organization that I also founded called sacred South Asian American coalition to renew democracy, working, working on organizing um, progressives within the South Asian American community here in Illinois. Uh, So that's those are the hats that I wear now. Um, Previously, I have worked with the United Nations um, in Israel, Palestine, Specifically, from 2013 to 2015, I worked with the UN based in Gaza City uh, for a humanitarian access team, essentially getting people, humanitarian people and goods in and out. Um, I was leading actually evacuations during that war in 2014, during that two-month-long war. I'll get into some more of that details and those details in a little bit. Uh, I've also worked with the UN Human Rights Office um, in Geneva on on a report that was essentially assessing the right to water in the occupied Palestinian territories, highlighting the lack of access to drinking water. Um, And since basically the last few years, since 2020 roughly, I am a gender, one of my clients is um, the UN in the West Bank and Gaza. I'm a gender equity researcher for them. I've traveled twice in the last couple of years to um, the Holy Land, uh, including to Gaza um, in April of this year. So that's sort of a quick overview of of my uh, background.
1: All right. Uh, by the way, this is just breaking news coming across uh, my phone right now. And from The New York Times, Israel agreed to daily combat pauses in Gaza to let civilians flee the U.S. said. Uh, Israel official stressed the pauses were limited. And that's just the breaking news that I saw. Um, so I'll keep that in the in the backdrop. Uh, you mentioned 2014. Uh, and. Um, People have short memories. So why don't you just recount briefly uh, what occurred in 2014 so we can understand how it's sort of relevant to what's happening right now. Go ahead. Right. I mean,
2: um, people will remember that as the summer of Ferguson in the U.S. Um, And um, many may remember also during that summer, um, which actually overlapped with Ramadan, um, there was a two-month-long war between Israel and Hamas war escalation however you want to describe it people will use different terms on that um in short that uh, was the last time that the Israeli military entered on the ground into Gaza and every kind of all analysts these days will look at this conflict that we're currently looking at uh, this escalation uh, as being the largest one since 2014 and that one being kind of the most similar um to this one though i should say um during that 2014 conflict the loss of life was dramatically less um even though it was two months long um and and now of course uh, we've already seen you know over 10,000 um you know individuals uh, losing their lives including israeli and palestinian both and um uh, maybe if it's helpful, I could speak a little bit more about kind of what my job was during that period, during that war. Yes. Sure. Again, it, it was work with an, it's called the UN Access Coordination Unit. It still exists. Um, and Essentially, it's under the mandate of the UN political mission locally that is supporting the peace process, as well as the UN humanitarian office. And basically, the team was based in Jerusalem, so I spent a decent amount of time in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and other places in the West Bank. Um, for work, but in short, we had a team of international staff. Uh, my my boss was a uh, Kiwi from uh, from New Zealand, uh, a military guy. He was the lead of the team. Um, another woman, my deputy, was, was from Croatia. So myself, I was Indian American. So we had many international staff, but then we also had Palestinian and Israeli team members, which is fairly unique to have kind of a team where you had people, um, Israelis and Palestinians on the same team. Um, I was the director, the Gaza Director for that unit, basically establishing the office in Gaza City and led negotiations for the entry of humanitarian staff and equipment. Um, this, you know, in short, you could say, uh, we would get a call from UNICEF who wanted to build a desalination plant in the Gaza Strip um, that was funded by the EU. And so it would be you know my job basically to be on the phone and in meetings with Israeli military to confirm that all of the equipment that they needed to bring in to build this desalination plant, was um you know acceptable for the military to let it um enter gaza so i'd be doing those kind of things also dealing extensively with palestinian permits where we'd have u.n staff or palestinians uh, living in the gaza strip who would need to travel um you know into jerusalem uh, and to exit gaza they need specific uh permits from the israeli um military and israeli system so negotiating those ensuring that we were able to get uh, the permits we needed so that people Again, like UNICEF or World Food Program or World Health Organization, a variety of these different U.N. offices that they could do their work across in and out.
1: All right. So just uh, thinking about what you just said, you're working with both Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, so that meant like you would be on the phone uh, with an Israeli and then you'd be on a phone with a Palestinian or you'd be in the office of an Israeli and then the office of a Palestinian. You're crossing back and forth uh, into entities that are at war with each other, that openly despise each other. How are you able to negotiate those passageways back and forth uh, without alienating one side or another? Yeah, it's
2: absolutely true. It definitely requires, you know, a very gentle touch and a very thoughtful touch and a thoughtful approach. Um, You know, usually it's, it's very standard for the UN to have a set of kind of humanitarian principles, which include, you know, impartiality, um, and, you know, the humanitarian principle of, you know, delivering humanitarian aid. But impartiality may, means uh, essentially that you have the same set of criteria or same set of rules that you're applying um, to whoever you're engaging with, right? And so those rules for us are international human rights law, international humanitarian law, and we would engage with whoever the actors that we needed to, you know, armed actors who are engaging with, with those principles. And so I'm um, trying to keep it technical in that way. It, it, it's very interesting, maybe <clears throat> obvious to some of your your listeners here. but uh, culturally, you know it's very different dealing with an Israeli military. Uh, you know colleagues often who were young soldiers you know 18, 19, 20, who were in charge of a lot of the work that we dealt with, um, and then at the same time, dealing with different Palestinian interlocutors, just totally culturally different, and you'd have to have just a very different touch and approach. Um, to try to get the job done and,
1: and kind of achieve what we were looking to achieve. Talk about that difference a little bit. Uh, yeah, it, it, I didn't realize it would be a 20-year-old soldier that you'd be dealing with. I thought you were dealing with uh, somebody higher up the food chain. But let's talk about this. a 20-year-old Israeli soldier and then, I don't know, on the other side, what, a 25-year-old Palestinian activist or something. Like, would, would you change what you said to one when you were talking to the other, would you try to accommodate your speech in some way? Uh, or would you say nothing at all and just listen? How'd you handle it?
2: Yeah, true. Obviously, you, you know, I learned uh, a bit of Hebrew. Um, and so you you go on with some of the Hebrew, "manyanim shalom, mashlamech you know, and you try to um, use the Hebrew as an entryway to engage with people. I remember one very, um, is very interesting moment, and this must have been 2015 um, during the fall season. Uh, they had a sukkah like, at the Israeli military base that it, you know borders on Gaza, where we would negotiate and where we'd meet with uh, a lot of the, the soldiers. And it was just, I mean, for me, growing up in Skokie, right? Every year, maybe Sukkot was maybe one of my favorite Jewish holidays, if not my favorite. It's just a beautiful way to spend time and have a meal outdoors and you know, beautiful fall weather. And so you engage with people, I mean, culturally, um, Again, growing up in Skokie, I spent more time um, in synagogue than I did in a you know any Hindu Buddhist temple or anything like that. Uh, just because uh, at age thirteen, going to bar mitzvahs best year of my life. I was joke um, because it was just so much fun in Skokie. So, anyways, you know, culturally, I was uh, you know very Jewish in that sense, and so in that in that way, it was very comfortable um, to engage with you know many Israelis um, culturally um, and on the Palestinian side. I would say there is a I mean a unique a unique connection, but there in some ways, uh, you know Arab culture is is maybe closer to South Asian culture or Asian culture more broadly. It's you know it's literally West Asia, right? So I think there's a lot of cultural um, similarities, um, drinking chai, sitting down, um kind of culturally similar similar ways that I' would approach things. Um what I mean, very specifically, when you would go in a meeting, with Israeli soldiers it would literally be you sit down at the table and it would it would be they would say tell us the four things you want you know what do you want now and you'd have to go boom 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 right through and negotiate from the start uh, engaging with Palestinian uh, interlocutors it would be the complete opposite <laughs> you go and you sit down you talk about everything you talk about you know soccer or you know football you talk about that you talk about the weather you talk about everything and the last you know oftentimes it would be a, an hour long meeting and you'd be 55 minutes in. And then they would say, okay, so what do you want to talk about? <laughs> and, then, and then the last five minutes, you kind of name those three or four things that you want. And they would say, sure, that makes sense. So it'd be, it's really just uh, in a way that's, you know, obviously an exaggerated um, exaggeration. But, you know, that's that's one way, one example in, in how it would be different, engaging.
1: So all right, you talked about the differences in engaging. Uh, based on your experience, what similarities did you see? between Israelis and Palestinians. I, um,
2: that's very interesting. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to, you know, speak in, you know, like uh, in the kind of broad abstract about groups of people, right? So I, I wanna refrain a little bit from that. But like, you can say that similarities do exist as they do with all people, right? And The concerns that people had uh, about themselves, their safety and their families. Uh, was totally, um, you know, copy paste and similar, right? People um, feared for, you know, conflict. Feared the conflict in 2014, in particular. Number of f- friends and colleagues on the Israeli side, and, and many in Gaza who were just, you know, totally traumatized and and broken um, from violence that they saw, uh, experienced, or that their, um, you know, friends and family experienced as well. So I think those human things were were absolutely true, right? And maybe it's just the the superficial parts of people that were different, right, culturally at the top level or office culture or whatever. But I think at the core, centrally, um, what mattered, people were were ex- exactly the same. In my opinion.
1: Okay. Uh, all right. Um, let's talk about uh, the conflict in 2014 as a lead into what's going on now. Uh, so I have three questions, uh, and I'd love to hear you riff on them. Uh, in the most general way, what uh, precipitated the 2014 uh, war uh, and um, what was sort of the purpose or goal that each side had, in your opinion, from that conflict. Uh, And then ultimately, what was gained from it, if anything was gained at all? Because I think that's, when I think about... uh, the eruptions that occur uh, in uh, between Israel and Palestine since, like, the 80s, Pushkar. Uh, I always think in terms of, like, what precipitated it. You know what I'm saying? There's, like, an incident, like an act of aggression, or, uh, in, in this case, uh, October 7th, you know, the slaughter of Israelis by Hamas. Uh, sometimes it's, like, I can remember Sharon going into uh, a mosque, you know it's there's always an act that per, uh, precipitates it and then it's like it's like each side has a goal did they gain what they wanted i i always confuse with that one because it doesn't seem like anyone really gains anything ultimately so your thoughts on what went down in 2014.
2: yeah and it's <clears throat> thanks for that question and, and it feeds maybe well into what you pointed out the breaking news from the new york times that you saw uh, about humanitarian pauses and um that's interesting for me, specifically because you know I was literally on the ground then supporting those humanitarian pauses. And uh, we were looking to negotiate with them locally as I was in Gaza Gaza City to ensure that they would be respected um locally. so my my supervisor would be in in Jerusalem. Um, another colleague would be at the Israeli military base called Erez, which is just on the border with Gaza. They would be <clears throat> essentially, um, trying to negotiate such humanitarian pauses and I'd be the guy locally um, trying to ensure that that happened as well. So we would, you know, a lot of things that you're seeing in the in the um, the headlines today about um, ensuring humanitarian quarters, ensuring uh, exiting of, um, you know, travel out of the Rafa border uh, with Egypt. Um, I was working on the ground for a number of these things. Um, the humanitarian pauses that you're seeing right now, I, I, my take is that, That will help facilitate the evacuation of some civilians that we should be very clear here. The the civilians that will be allowed to leave. Are those with dual nationalities? I think that was the case in 2014. I'm almost certainly that will be almost certain that will be the case now as well. Um, Mm -hmm. That those with dual nationalities, including, you know, Americans, you know, Palestinian Americans, British Palestinians, Turkish Palestinians, Brazilian Palestinians. I was. uh, Facilitating the exit uh, for a number of these dual nationals then essentially because um, there's no diplomatic representation or very minimal diplomatic representation in the Gaza Strip. um, We would be dealing our team with diplomatic missions directly that mostly were based in Israel and they would be coming to our team saying we have our you know our citizens in the Gaza Strip, can you help us get them out. So we would develop a list of, of citizens there, they would share that with me and I had to develop a mechanism in which you know, we would help um, encourage those civilians, you know, who who had qualified um, for evacuation to meet at a specific point. It was the UN building where I was staying um, and ensuring that they would meet there at a certain time. And I was literally, you know, in a UN car with the UN flag, um, in you know, in front of the buses of civilians, two or three or four, depending on the day, and and escorting them to the areas crossing the the you know Israeli uh, military crossing um, to exit Gaza, and um, it was it was sometimes it would be during the humanitarian pauses, other times it wouldn't be. Uh, it would be something that we would have negotiated, even though it was under fire. But we would negotiate. You know this is the route. This is the number of buses. This is our vehicle number. Don't hit us. Um, and I remember once I literally was on a speakerphone with my my colleague who was based at the Israeli base. Um, and so she had had she was there with some military you know Israeli military members and i was in the car uh, with the u.n staff member or driver and basically you know she'd say where are you now what do you see now what you know what uh, intersection are you at what junction are you at and i'd keep her posted just so we ensured that you know there was no we would not be hit on our exiting um uh, i'm just taking it one direction there and sort of some of the breaking news that you're you're mentioning um, but um, it is, when you talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the goals and what was gained, it's it's really hard to look now, look back and see that anything was gained. I, I know, at, you know, at that stage, the Netanyahu government said that they wanted to, you know, reduce ha- Hamas's strength, you know, bring Hamas down um, and, um, you know, destroy a number of tunnels that Hamas had, had you know, Essentially, um, you know, dug under Gaza, you know, the Gaza Strip. Um, Of course, when we look at that now, nine years now down the line, we see that none of those objectives were achieved,
1: um,
2: and um, you know, the gains are are minimal. I mean, Hamas in that in that conflict, I think they were able to capture one or two, or claim to have captured one or two Israeli um, citizens, just soldiers at that point. Obviously, something is very different now. After the, the horrors of uh, October seventh um, the absolute tragedy of that attack on civilians, predominantly on civilians, uh, the loss of life—it's um, terrifying. Uh, but I should say that, uh, in comparison, the number—you know—we're t- looking at literally something like two hundred and twenty hostages that they've taken versus in that um, in twenty fourteen war result, it was a very small number. Um, Sorry, went on a little bit of a riff there.
1: No, that was good because it leads up to this question: uh, Does anybody ever learn anything uh, from the conflicts? So, what the 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 goal is to destroy Hamas, uh, and they emerged even stronger. So now the goal is, oh, we're really going to destroy Hamas. In fact, I don't know if you watched last night's presidential uh, debate. Uh, I always urge my lefty listeners to listen to what the Republicans are saying. So many of them don't. Uh, but the Republicans were like cheering Israel on at the debate last night, Republican presidential candidates saying, finish the job. I think a couple of them said literally finish the job of – of destroying Hamas. And, of course, to destroy Hamas, you have to pretty much destroy Gaza and pummel it. This is me speaking, not Pushker. So uh, I'm like, what makes Israelis, in your humble opinion, think that they will achieve the goal that they couldn't achieve in 2014 this time around?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a... It's a really great question and, um, you know, I think it's important to try to apply some of the frameworks that we, you know, when we look at U.S. American political system and we look at um, the right and the left and, and what messages and what strategies are being taken. Um, I really like to look at uh, Netanyahu through a Trump framework. I think there's a lot of um, parallels between Netanyahu and Trump um, and Trump, of course um hijacking uh the republican party making it a cult of trump um hijacking quote conservative conservatism and and um mutating it into something that is almost nonsensical um but also looking uh, at that and now you know our criticism of of trump or the republican party is not a criticism that makes us anti-american right it makes us uh it makes us um, i would argue more you know proudly american right that we stick to our values and we hold the system of the country accountable to these values that created the country right if we lose those principles and those values we lose the country right and so looking at israel in a similar prism to look at uh, how netanyahu has really warped the political um, discourse um, and um, over as your listeners probably will know that he's effectively been you know, prime minister for something like 20 years since i think 96 was the first time he was elected as prime minister then he was off for a bit and then he's essentially been prime minister now for I think, 14 of the last 16 years um, and has totally warped um the israeli political system um he's now in in uh, created a government you know parliamentary system so he's it's his party plus a few um extreme you know um um far-right parties israeli political parties Um, you may have seen this in the news recently that one of the members of his coalition government so um so extreme and and it's it's a violent extremist ideology that literally called for dropping a nuclear bomb on gaza literally Uh, uh, one of his his uh, coalition members literally said that publicly Uh, and not to even mention how I don't know if we can swear on here, but how idiotic it would be to to drop a nuclear weapon on an adjacent territory, right? That would destroy Israel, right? Like, I mean, just it's nonsensical. It's yeah. foolish and and self-defeating, right? Um, but then also how how uh, bloodthirsty and violent um, that kind of rhetoric and language. Is. So just to start to look at um, um, the current Israeli political system and, and the right and this extremist government, which is Openly called by CNN and others as the most extreme right government in Israeli history, um, um, but to, to look at to look at some of these parallels is important. And I think um, if I'll introduce this you know, rough concept here, we might come back to it a couple of times. But the the right strategy to create a, a problem cycle, right? To disinvest in the future, create a crisis then argue for more far right solutions to that problem. I mean, close mental health uh, hospitals, complain about unhoused population that have mental health challenges, you then arrest them or in some cases shoot them, right? Like that's what we, I don't know, something we've seen here, or you cut taxes, um, you complain you can't pay pensions, and then you have to justify firing t-shirts, right? Um, but so, so these kind of this, and maybe you have a more uh, elegant name for that than this kind of problem cycle. But I I bring this up simply to look at the question of how to handle Hamas or how how to handle Gaza, what to do with it in a similar way, right? Whereas you allow Hamas to become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, Um, you don't address any of the issues that the broader Palestinian people have, broader uh, question of what's the future for Palestinian rights uh, and and justice for Palestinian people. And, And then it eventually, you know, boils over and ex- literally explodes in your face. Um, so now, what do you have? To, how do you justify it? You know, what's the only solution? Um, as some of these people are describing, you know, dropping a nuclear weapon, right? So you just ratchet it up with even more aggressive, violent solution that doesn't address any of the fundamental underlying root causes of of the issue, right?
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I first of all, you are allowed to swear in the show, it is a podcast. Every conceivable uh, <laughs> naughty word has been said, uh, that you don't have to if you don't want to, uh, you know, uh, but uh, no one will uh censor you, unlike in Congress where they censored uh, Congresswoman uh, Tlaib. We'll get into uh, that. Uh, on the other side, there's the strategy of Hamas, uh, and this is from. Today's New York Times, a couple of reporters the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this, Pushker, did an interview with uh, the, the, a member of Hamas's top uh, leadership body uh, and um, and this headline sort of sums up the, um, the gist of the interview which is, Hamas's goal for October 7th, a permanent state of war. Group's leaders said carnage was needed to restore focus on Palestinians. So um, your thoughts on that uh, as an objective uh, and how from a diplomatic standpoint you could uh, negotiate or deal with uh, a group uh, that is uh, sort of sanctioning permanent state of war as a way of uh, redressing its, uh, or uh, meeting its goals and objectives.
2: Um, yeah, um, I think if it's okay, I'll take maybe just a quick step back just to discuss a little bit of kind of, what I would describe as relevant background for this specific uh, escalation, because I think we need to look at it <clears throat> um, through a lens of, let's say, recent or contemporary history. I think sometimes um, going too far back can kind of lose um, focus on on the present and what can be done. Um, but if we look back, you know, for example, from the '90s or whatever, and the Israel, uh, you know, Israeli-Palestinian peace process that started in the '90s. Quote the Oslo, uh, you know, Accords, Clinton administration, Um, and so essentially that process that began in the '90s uh, has essentially been ended by by Netanyahu, right? And um, we should say that uh, Netanyahu literally came into power as a prime minister on a wave of extremism that he helped stoke, helped to stoke, and that extremism literally led to an extreme Jewish Israeli literally murdering the prime minister who agreed to the peace process, right Rabin, right yep. so in the, in the 1990s. So we have to remember that Netanyahu is very comfortable with this le- level of violent extremism in, in Judaism that he's been stoking um so much that it killed the Prime Minister of Israel. Um, and so just to say that um, that process that began in the 90s is is got, you know essentially a nice nice word would say you know stalled, defunct, it's it's no longer uh, moving forward and hasn't for, for years right um and and this is something that the bush administration tried to move forward could argue you know how effective they were at it or whatever they officially i think on paper they said they were trying to continue it the obama administration also tried to continue it the trump administration came in and, and literally never um, attempted to seriously engage in and um, extend this process in fact they took a number of, uh, made a number of policy decisions that took this process back, right backwards, um, rather than forwards as a peace process. Um, you know, much touted by uh, mainstream media, um, and our current President Joe Biden, the quote Abraham Accords. You know, th- these were agreements that were normalizing relations between Israel and a number of countries uh, like Morocco, um, um, UAE, if I remember correctly, Bahrain, if I remember correctly, that essentially, you know, they announced um, these agreements and Jared Kushner was flying all over the planet um, celebrating this. Um, And this is something that Biden took office and continued, you know, that policy and has been in recent months really pushing forward for quote Saudi, Israel, um, Saudi Arabia, Israeli um, normalization process, right? So instead of continuing that Oslo process and addressing the israeli-palestinian process and an issue trying to broker uh, uh, um, an agreement there the recent administrations trump and biden totally overlooked this issue right they totally looked a different direction they pretended it doesn't exist thought that by um by addressing some of these other things somehow this would um i don't know resolve itself right and um, so I, I bring that context up uh, because I think it's very important to look at when Hamas, uh, um, in a way, you know, launched this terrible attack, and uh, and basically, as you described, uh, um, tried to establish this level of, uh, you know, permanent war. Right. It, it was a way for them to put their uh, their name in the papers. Right. They wanted to to amplify their their cause, quote cause, or essentially wanted a lot of um publicity right and they wanted to um stop this normalization process that was happening between many um, um arab countries uh, normalizing relations with israel right so in a way some read into this saying that this was hamas's attempt to stop the saudi um, and israel uh, normalization process by by creating such an issue and making literally causing this level of escalation war and violence carnage that that no country like Saudi Arabia or others would be able to, um, to quote, normalize, right. Um, but I also want to take another step back because when we talk about Netanyahu kind of um, disengaging from the peace process and, and literally Netanyahu um, expanding settlements um, in the West Bank, right, the peace process was essentially supposed to say the West Bank was um, the remit of the Palestinian Authority, you know, a legitimate Palestinian government. Um, that was supposed to uh, have power over the West Bank and Gaza. Um, but the Netanyahu policy of expanded settlements continued to um, slowly erode the power of the Palestinian Authority by literally stealing land in the West Bank, encouraging settlers to take this land, helping to arm settlers, um, supporting them with troops, um, to, in a way, you know, scuttle any possibility that a PA could continue the process of governing the West Bank. Um, so that has been one of his key strategies. Uh, at the same time, we should say his his strategy has been to to under undermine the Palestinian authority in the West Bank by supporting Hamas. And I don't think this has necessarily been covered nearly enough. That, um, and I'll, I'll give you a quote here. Uh, in 2015, uh, a man uh, who is currently the finance minister of Israel in this extreme right government. Um, he said that the Palestinian Authority is, quote, a liability, but Hamas is an asset. Mm. Uh, And so this is, again, he's a minister in this far-right government. And the logic then was the Palestinian Authority is is legitimate. It's recognized around the world. Uh, It can create a Palestinian government. We literally brokered an agreement, the Oslo process, where we said we recognize this Palestinian uh, peaceful political movement. Uh, And we will normalize relations and build a two-state solution, right? Uh, But Netanyahu wanted to scuttle that. He he doesn't want a two-state solution, right? And so, um, in a way, he wanted to empower Hamas, which, um, you know, is literally uh, the rival to the Palestinian Authority, right? Um, And so, in this sense, um, since 2014 till today. Um, we can see that Hamas has actually grown, you know, uh, that war in 2014, Hamas took a very, very hard hit, but um, prior to October 7th, Hamas, you could argue, has been the strongest it's ever been. And I can say I saw this firsthand um, in my recent trips to Gaza. I was there in April. Uh, and in 2014, there was a very clear one kilometer no man's land around the wall that's separation barrier that separated uh, the Gaza Strip from Israel, and uh, that one kilometer, anyone who walked there, any goat that moved in that territory, any farmer who tried to farm in that land would literally be shot. That was literally that sniper's, you know, ready to shoot anyone moving around there, right? But when I went back, you know, just in April, uh, I asked colleagues, and I, because I saw that that entire area leading up to the Israeli wall was um, was no longer uh, no man's land; it was now. Totally, like, accessible by by people by Hamas, right? So they could literally walk up to the wall, um, and um, I was totally shocked uh, by that. Um, but what I heard from colleague, you know, this is it's not a scientific thing. This is what I heard from a colleague who said that um, the Israeli military on the uh, you know, Israel side of the the separation barrier would coordinate movements uh, with Hamas military moving towards the wall and patrolling the area, right? Um, and so what I'm trying to describe here is that an increase of control in uh, of Hamas over the Gaza Strip, an increase in comfort uh, with the Netanyahu government uh, of working with Hamas, right? Uh, engaging Hamas, right? And, and again, we talk about the peace process and trying to undermine the PA, which is a legitimate political movement, uh, but engaging with, um, you know, Hamas, an organization that, you know, calls for the destruction of Israel and literally carried out this event on October 7th. But that that is totally perplexing in a lot of ways. But at the same time, when we come back to this concept of this, you know, problem cycle from the right, right, you keep engaging with, um, um, cr- you disinvest in the future, you create a crisis, and then you argue for for more of those solutions. And, and what we've seen time and time again is, you Netanyahu governments have gone to war in Gaza is that shortly after that they'll call for election right so after 2014 the war happened uh and and Netanyahu went to election and was reelected to a new mandate in government right so that um, that benefit of going to war and then going um to try to get reelected shortly thereafter um, it's totally cynical totally horrifying um but but that's one thing that we can say when you asked you know, what was gained over the course of this time, Netanyahu maintaining power in that period.
1: Mm. Wow. Uh, that was uh, one of the most uh, cynical views of the world that I've heard. I, and I'm used to Chicago, where cynicism where reigns uh, <laughs> to one degree or another. But, uh, wow, just keeping that cycle going. Uh, so before I, I shift it to... The discourse here in the United States, which I really want to talk about before we leave for the day. Uh, Do you you just described the problem cycle uh, and uh, how it benefits both uh, the extreme right in Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza? Do you see any glimmer of hope that there could be a way of breaking that cycle? Um, I would say,
2: uh, I would say it's it's a difficult moment, right? It's a very difficult moment after the tragedy on the 7th of October uh, and the horrors that, that, that continue, we continue to learn about, right? As we mentioned, we still have something like 220 uh, hostages still being held in Hamas captivity. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a very difficult moment and um, I think there is a lot written and being um discussed as uh, the potential for overreaction reaction or uh, you know, and from the Israeli military in Gaza, which, you know, with mass displacements, um and all that's it's happening, it looks like um, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, right? Um, and it's it's really, it's really shocking. um, there is um, one interesting development in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of Israeli coverage is is pointing to the quote intelligence failure that led to this October 7th event. I described a little bit about how um, Netanyahu and his allies have engaged Hamas or benefited or described about how they want to work with Hamas, you know. Um, the one very specific thing that I heard uh, was uh, a a choice of redeploying something like 30,000 Israeli soldiers from the Gaza wall to the West Bank. Uh, For what purpose, Uh, Ben? To to support settlers, um, you know, in the West Bank. So, in supporting um, West Bank, you know, further settlements. Um, So, that decision literally left a hole in the wall, you know, left um, Israel unprepared to deter this Hamas attack. Um, And as a result of that, there has been an enormous amount of um, speculation that, that netanyahu's political future is kind of done but most of israeli society blames him for for this catastrophe and this um massive loss of life you know the worst um you know day of uh loss of life in israel's history correct me if i'm wrong there if i got that right or not but one of the the largest um in one day toll uh of loss of um life um israeli life um and and so i think there is a potential for, for something to change there politically. Um, but um, it is uh, it is something that uh, I think I might say in, in the very short run, we're likely to see um, the wrong people benefiting from this escalation, right? You have to ask, you know, why did this happen? Why did Hamas do this? Or, or, or whatever. Uh, why are these decision makers making the decisions that they're making. And for me, it seems like those that benefit from this are essentially those in power. Right. Um, as we described moments ago, Hamas was was not being talked about You know, two months ago, one month ago, um, was not on the map or even um, even the conversations uh, were were in the region about Saudi and uh, Israeli normalization, right? They were not about how to address the Palestinian issue, right? So Hamas benefits from that. I would say Hamas, which has governed the Gaza Strip for you know 15 plus years, um, essentially did not want to govern, right? And and we we know this. They're not good at governing. They're militant, you know, ideal uh, uh, ideological organization, but yet they were tasked since 2006, six seven, essentially with um, governing Gaza, right? And um, they didn't want that responsibility. They were terrible at the responsibility. Um, as we know, there were recent protests uh, in July in Gaza. This doesn't get covered enough. But in July, there were thousands of people who came out to protest against Hamas. Um, they were even burning Hamas flags in the streets. And Hamas, a military, um, you know, militant kind of military dictatorship broke up those protests they arrested people they destroyed phones phones of anyone who filmed it um and essentially you know tried to shut everybody up there's an interesting public opinion survey uh of polling in gaza kind of public opinion sentiment uh, by an organization called the arab barometer survey Um, and they did a survey literally the week before uh october 7th yeah and what it found was 67% sixty seven percent of the people polled had no or little trust in Hamas. Only twenty five percent said they would vote for the Hamas leader in a presidential election. Um, and seventy percent of them believed they didn't have the right to protest um, in Gaza, right? That they could not speak out uh, publicly. So it shows that, and I think this counters a lot of the narratives. a lot of people talk about, you know, Palestinians in Gaza deserve this. they they like Hamas, et cetera. Hamas is a military dictatorship. Anyone who speaks out against them will literally be arrested or beaten right in the streets. Um, And I know this from friends and colleagues um, who don't abide by, you know, um, their dress code or whatever and being harassed and criticized and attacked um, for that. And so we we just want to remember that um, the anti-Hamas sentiment in Gaza, by Palestinians in Gaza, was very high. So how does Hamas benefit from this? They benefit from changing the game. They no longer govern, right? It's at war now. People are just literally trying to you know, stay alive. And um, and in a way, it's a warped way that Hamas increases its uh, uh, its popularity because they're now the only people, quote, defending themselves from Israeli airstrikes, quote, right? That is the framing and the messaging that they can put out. Um, and the last group, of course, and uh, maybe you're familiar with this one, Ben, very well, who benefits from this? Uh, the arms dealers, right? The weapons makers, right? Clearly, the amount of money uh, that this country continues to burn um, on on weaponry and, and military that, that hands it over to the military industrial complex um, is is terrible, right? And, and unbelievable. Right? Well,
1: that was, um, yeah, that was a great riff, pushkar sure. and uh, you know, and it brings it back to uh, this country, so. <laughs> Unlimited arms to Israel, yes. There will be companies making huge profits from that. Uh, In the recent uh, debate on this in Congress, uh, the um, MAGA forces uh, in Congress were trying to uh, uh, pay for this. This is so twisted and weird by cutting the IRS. (laughs) I I mean, folks, you cannot make this stuff up because it's so ludicrous. So they're going to take money that Biden intended to hire people who were going to uh, investigate whether well-to-do folks were uh, getting by on their taxes. That's a euphemistic way of saying, you know, uh, cheating the tax man. Uh, And they're going to use that to finance uh, weapons, uh, selling uh, weaponry for Israel very bizarre very weird ultimately you would lose money in the united states the uh the, just it's the problem cycle uh that you just alluded to Pushker. so you're going to have an even greater deficit which will justify even more cuts <laughs> uh in social programs while you're pushing for more cuts in taxes uh MAGA has lost all credibility in my humble opinion they're not in any way legitimate uh governing uh, Power to deal with; it, they're just a nihilistic, destructive outfit uh, that's pr- promoting Donald Trump's. Uh, so, I don't know how you deal with that. That, wow, that's d- not quite sure if there's any rational voice uh, in the Republican Party anymore uh, that you can have anything res- remotely resembling a logical conversation with. Then you got the left. More, I. Let me see. Then you have the Democrats, liberals, centrists, moderates, lefties, progressives. Everybody calls themselves different things. In fact, I may be the only one who calls them lefties. I, don't, I have no idea what the left calls itself anymore. Uh, I personally, if I was a congressperson, don't know how I would never have voted to censor uh, Congresswoman Tlaib. I thought that was ridiculous and absurd and sending out the wrong message at exactly the wrong time. Um, on the other hand, I'm really uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric coming from the left, which is so callous and indifferent uh, to the, the suffering of Israelis. So their hands aren't clean either. Uh, and the people get very self-righteous in this country. They're not even they don't live in Gaza. They don't live in Israel. They're not taking shelter from Israeli warplanes. Or incoming missiles. You know what I'm saying? But they're all big and bad. Uh, So what's your advice to to Democrats as a person who is like literally try to be a diplomat uh, in Gaza and Israel? Try just to negotiate some basic elementary things between Israeli soldiers and uh, Palestinian residents. What's your advice to the Democrats as to how to go forward?
2: Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with you. I, th- You know, a lot of people have put out um, certain messages that I've found to be, you know, ignorant um, and ineffective, right? And I should say that I approach all of this um, in a principled but very pragmatic a way, right? So I'm less uh, ideological about this. I'm much more pragmatic. And maybe that has to deal with the fact that I've seen people... Um, in gaza and i've seen the the devastation and have colleagues who are literally there now and uh, you know one of my colleagues said that he has lost 20 members of his extended family already Um, and that's all they they know about so far um so this um it leads me to being more pragmatic about how do we make progress rather than grandstanding right um i also believe you know um you know personally i'm a person of hindu heritage a practicing buddhist right (laughs) And to me, it's critical that we lead with nonviolence, right? And seeking an end to all suffering. Of course, every faith has those, you know, core tenets, right? It's not just the ones that I uh, come with, but but you know, even if we look at you know Dr. King's analysis of the three evils of society—racism, poverty, and war—or um, or we use nonviolence as a starting point, and we, um, I think, from the left, this is how we should be approaching, right? And nonviolence also means um, nonviolence in our rhetoric. So there's a lot of violent rhetoric dehumanizing rhetoric coming from the left um and as obviously from the right as well from the far right and the trolls um but um maybe i have a short list of four or five um things maybe just to, to emphasize that i'm not necessarily hearing people say or maybe people aren't aware of and i, I think that's important um one is uh what is demanding not just ceasefire, but negotiations, right? Um, as my my uh, Kiwi boss, when I was working there on the ground, said he's a military guy. Uh, my trainee, he would always say, you know, there are no military solutions for political issues, right? This is a political problem. There is no military solution for it. And the US has harshly learned that lesson in Vietnam, Afghanistan, right? You cannot blow up your problems. You cannot just, Destroy them, right? You have to address them, right? And and so I think when we look at the question of Hamas, and you're hearing the rhetoric coming out from the uh, Netanyahu and others, uh, Israeli leadership, saying that we we must you know, we must end them, we must kill Hamas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we know uh, when we look in our recent history, uh, there was the Taliban, then there was Al Qaeda, then there was ISIS, and each time they told us that they were worse and worse and worse, right? And so, what's the future in, in Gaza if you're um, the future in Gaza if um, Hamas leadership is murdered off, right? Um, it's a new crop of leaders um, who are more violent, um, who are learning that um, they won't live very long, right? So, what is what is their incentive to negotiate for the for the long run, for a long future, right? There, you're disincentivizing that dramatically, right? Um, and and when I say um, demand negotiations now not just a ceasefire when we're talking about military aid packages or um, why aren't we talking about a major investment in quote triage diplomacy right why aren't we demanding uh increase in spending um for you know state department representatives uh to try to work this out asap right demanding that negotiations bring about uh, sorry an end to a war comes only if there's an agreement to go back to the negotiating table Um, and and try to address this issue very quickly before it continues to spiral out of control. Um, Second, to to my friends on the left, to to ensure that we're emphasizing and criticizing the right people, right? When I hear language that is broad uh, about that country needs to do X, Y, or Z, or that country is uh, illegitimate because X, Y, Z, I I find that to be just incorrect. I find it to be um, terrible messaging. Uh, I think we need to be very specific, right? We need to criticize Netanyahu because he has no long-term security solution for the future safety of Israel, right? The, in the last 15 years, there have been five wars with Hamas and Gaza, uh, and the, the, the wars keep happening. What the fuck, right? Like, this is not a solution. This is a failed policy, failed time and time again. And we have to emphasize that you know, Israel must be safe and will be safe only when there's peace with the neighbors, right? And that's a two-state solution, uh, um, but as we know, Netanyahu lives to you know from war to war, election to election, crisis to crisis. So he's not uh, at, thinking about the long-term solution. A long-term solution, of course, would be with people at peace rather than people warring with each other, right? So I don't hear anyone, um, um, you know, criticizing. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say I don't hear anyone saying it, but I don't hear it loud enough, right? That that's, that this um, policy has failed time and time again we need something to change, right? Um, Then uh, maybe a third point is that we should be embracing the progressive movement in this country and all countries around the world, right? We should be advancing a united front uh, of progressives, embracing the left in Israel. There's so many partners there, excellent human rights groups that have literally been uh, attacked by Netanyahu's government. Uh, There are left parties, Meretz, for example, Obviously, there are uh, incredible numbers of uh, uh, exceptional Palestinian organizations, um, human rights, women rights, uh, other groups that we should be embracing and uh, critically supporting uh, in solidarity with them, um, rather than what I've seen in some places uh, of people trying to, quote, take up Hamas's uh, 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 argument or, or, I haven't seen necessarily too much like direct support of Hamas directly, but people, are unsophisticated about what they know about Palestinian society, and Hamas has put their name on this, uh, on the on the fight for Palestinian dignity and Palestinian future, and so people are walking into that right uh, and that failure. Right, I think uh, um, a wholesale attack on all of Israel, or Israeli society, is wrong, foolish, and self-defeating for the left. And I want to emphasize very clearly here, uh, again, because we hear some people talking about Hamas. Um, I don't want to say in a glowing way, but in some sort of nice way. Hamas is a manifestation of the far right as well, right? <laughs> it's a militant, religious, fundamentalist movement, right? Uh, and we just look at their policies, you know. While their rhetoric speaks of dignity and justice for Palestinians, what is their platform and what is their record of governing in Gaza, right? What do they think about democracy, and elections, women's rights, LGBTQI rights, right? Rights of free speech. Do they believe in a multiracial, multi faith society? No. Do they believe in peace no do they believe in investing in education no right do they spend the majority of their resources arming themselves yes right and so we want to be very clear that hamas is not on the left hamas is, is, is stolen uh the banner and they're the loudest uh, speaking with the biggest microphone or megaphone about the palestinian cause but they are not uh representative of it and i shared some of those statistics about what people in Gaza believe, you know, feel, how they feel about Hamas itself. Um, and uh, maybe finally, just to say that we need to turn down the volume, right? I think raising the volume and anger from the left actually hurts us. I think people stop listening when we keep shouting. They they, they turn off and they walk away. They say, this issue is too complex. Uh, it's too intense. I don't want to get involved. Um, and actually, that's it's beneficial to, to the far right, right? the far right is is the they're the ones who shout, shout and scream and scare and they have more resources to out scream us right uh, but that screaming turns people off and, and people stop talking about these issues um and and we're not going to win we're not going to make any progress um, um so so i think we need to turn down the volume um, in in our arguments um towards trying to address um the issue
1: that is about I think a uh, good a spot as any uh, uh, to end today's conversation uh, because I, I agree with you hundred uh, percent on your advice uh, and your analysis uh, and uh, I recommend that uh, you be hired to replace blinken uh, and to uh yeah like you want that <laughs> I could just see you flying across. Subtle diplomacy. Uh, in there, there's group. a new job of floor leader at City Hall opening <laughs> up. Hey, man, Brandon Johnson needs help. And he could, <laughs> someone who's what's a harder
2: job? What's the harder job?
1: <laughs> yeah, what's the harder? Oh, no, no doubt. Uh, bringing peace, uh, or just ending the carnage, uh. In in uh, in Palestine is much more challenging, I think, uh, than uh, being a floor leader in Chicago. No no question about it. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much, Pushkar. I appreciate that uh, you coming on, and I, now you're uh, obligated, having done the show once, to come back time after time and talk about uh, the issues uh, in the Middle East. And maybe we could use your diplomatic skills to talk about uh, issues. How would you? How would you use diplomacy to sort of like bring peace to uh, Chicago uh, in terms of Chicago's own political struggles? Uh, That would be an interesting uh, conversation to have. Like you think about what went down Thursday. I'm not asking you to answer this now. What went down Thursday uh, where you had one faction that's uh, extremely hostile to the notion of immigrants uh, coming, settling in Chicago trying to have a meeting to demand an end to Chicago's sanctuary city status and another faction trying to block that meeting because they didn't want to have the public weigh in, in a way Mm -hmm. that would like show how Chicago, how hostile Chicago is to immigrants, man, that Mm -hmm. we could use some diplomacy in the city of Chicago to get around that one. You know what I'm saying? So.
2: uh, It's a great idea. And I'm I'm definitely inviting myself to to be back for the, uh, the NBA trade deadline on February. What? Okay. Or whatever. Yeah, all right. We can do the real-time GMing about putting out some trades and try and see what we can get.
1: There are some of these guys. There are so many people who are lining up and want to talk uh, NBA basketball, and I have been negligent on that front, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm so uh, preoccupied with everything from Gaza to City Hall, Uh, but we will have the NBA conversation. My beloved Bulls lost last night. We're now three and six. Pushker's a big advocate for breaking up the Bulls, I believe. I'm just sensing that. Uh I,
2: I, uh, I, I want them to do well. I like these guys. I like this team. Can we fire the coach. Can we
1: start there? Do oh. something. <laughs> <laughs> not going to <laughs> I, uh, I think the Bulls have their own problem cycle. All right, that um, that concludes today's show. Thank you very much, Chrisker, for coming on. I appreciate it. also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.
0: And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows. Get Benny J. bonus interviews, columns written by Ben Jarofsky, and a lot of other great reader writers. So head to chicagoreader.com for all that and more. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.
1: a tour.